Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. Continuing our study through 1 Corinthians, we're making our way pretty, pretty well now these days, and, and uh, with the Lord's help, we will make it through probably sometime in the spring. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. The Apostle Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge and according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and, by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. Well, nothing says Reformation Sunday, then let's have a conversation about gifts. Um, but I mean, I just want to pause for a second and just consider that how much of our theology we have sung here this morning. Um, it's, we, don't, we don't need Reformation Sunday to do that. Certainly it's a fun thing that we do and it's an enjoyable thing. We can memorialize some critical parts of Christian church history. Um, but you think about that even in... Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, which is, by the way, one of, if not my favorite hymn of all time. He is singing and reminding his soul and to the church congregation, whoever he is singing this with, that our God is mighty. He will be with his people. And this is certainly right in the midst of the Reformation tensions, yes? And, and even goes so far and, you know, to even get into the, the, the spirit and his gifts are ours. It's like, so these were not things that were, like, the, the whole conversation about spiritual gifts isn't a new thing. It isn't, it, it isn't a unique thing. It's, it's something that has been part of the Christian experience and witness throughout the ages. And the great reformers wrestled with the role of the Spirit in their life. And they recognized that the Spirit was very much active in the people of God. Um, but the question becomes, of course, is to what extent. And, and so today, as we get into this text, we get to... See Paul talk about the role of the Spirit in the church um, and what we should expect from that and probably what we shouldn't expect from that as it goes along with that. So if you're at all familiar with this conversation, I'm going to throw a couple big words at you real quick, okay? You understand that the two larger um, representatives of the conversation regarding the Holy Spirit are one side you have continuationists or continuationism. And you have the other side, you have secessionism, right? And they represent the two broad perspectives within the Christian uh, theological world, particularly as it relates to how active certain gifts are, are still in the church today, 
maybe even in terms of tongues and prophecy and, and whatnot. And so continuationists believe that these gifts, along with miraculous healings and other supernatural manifestations, continue to operate within the church to this present day as they did in the early church, and they view them as a vital part of contemporary Christianity. Continuationism, though, we have to be careful when we start talking about that, when we start talking about any group that we may, or may agree or disagree with, that somehow know that they're monolithic, because it's not. They're not there's not just one kind of continuationist. Uh, there are continuationism kind of encompasses a range of perspectives. I'll, I'll just give you a couple. There's the kind of the classical charismatic continuationist, the, the Pentecostal movement, as you most of us know in the modern um, uh, time, and they would believe in the full scale, speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, miracles and so on and so forth. You have third-way continuationists who kind of the merging into evangelical ways, but typically acknowledge that the role of the spiritual gifts, but probably placed a less emphasis on them. To be honest with you, you probably know a lot of evangelicals who are continuationists. They just don't talk to you about it. Um, uh, you have neo-charismatic continuationists. These are the ones who tend to be a bit more radical, I think. They're the ones who kind of fall out of the, the real Pentecostal movement. Uh, we talked about in Sunday school a group called the New Apostolic Reformation and some of the voices that are in that. Um, and I, they're probably the most problematic or one of the most problematic in this, uh, in, this, in, this, in this conversation because they tend to go well beyond the scope of any type of reasonable conversation as far as Scripture is concerned. Um, so then you got open and cautious, con, you know, charismatic con continuationists. You got selective continuation. You got historic ones, whatnot. Okay. The other side of the coin is you got secessionists. Largely, most Protestant uh, pastors, theologians, were probably more secessionists. I would put myself broadly into this camp. But just like continuationism, not all secessionists are the same. I want to make sure we say this. Sometimes we get in this conversation. And you kind of get into this, like, oh, hey, it's like it's, it's black or white kind of thing. That's not actually the case at all. But secessionists argue, mostly broadly, that the extraordinary gifts ceased with the apostolic age and the completion of the biblical canon, as we have, the Bible we have here. And they assert that the specific purposes of those, those extraordinary gifts in the church, they've, they've now, they're no longer operative. And that they're th in these theological positions... Um, and uh, uh, significantly influence the worship practices of a church. So you can see this in the local church. You can see it in our church, kind of probably where we land on this, which is largely in the, in the secessionist kind of perspective, although we have people who might vary it on that whatsoever. But again, like continuationism, not all secessionists are the same. Uh, sometimes I want to go to some of my secessionist brother, brethren, and I want to go, why are you so mad? I mean, like, I do, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, just like I'd say, like, I, I might go to some of my continuationist friends, and I'm like, dude, y'all really need to tone it down a bit. I also want to go to some of my concessionist friends, and I'm like, come on, man. You Seriously, it's really, you don't need to be that mad about it. Jesus is Lord. There are a lot of Jesus-loving people, and we're all trying to figure these things out as it relates to Scripture, at least the most reasonable ones there. So you got those real full secessionists. you got those revelation uh, revelatory secessionists, they, they, they're open to some degree, but they recognize when it comes to revelatory gifts, those things have ceased. Um, you got cautious secessionists, you got historic, which is why I put myself in that, meaning that we just look through church history, kind of see how the church fathers and other ones have gone before us would engage in these conversations, and they would say largely that there's been a decline in these gifts as the church has been more established and the writings have been more established and so on and so forth. That's generally where I land on the conversation. But, I, uh, but as we think about the, that two big 
perspectives. I just want to like, one, before we even get into this text, I'm probably not going to answer all your questions here today. We got a large swath of material to cover between chapters 12 and 14 on this issue. Um, and we're going to see, and we're going to touch on some things. So where I may not get into everything today, I'm sure we'll touch on it over the next several weeks um, as we get into it. But what I want to do before we get into this is just kind of call us to say that the conversation isn't about two tribes. The conversation isn't about us being, um, being militant with our kind of, kind of way. Because honestly, Paul detests that kind of idea too. Um, he called out, I'm of a Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulist. Like, he was very clear about, like, that's not what needs to do this. And oftentimes what happens in this conversation is, I'm with this theologian who is anti-gifts, where I'm with this theologian who's pro-gifts, and I just want to go, like, let's all kind of come back, and we're going to just, like, study Paul's words here the best we know how, think through them well, and we're going to just try to discern what is Paul trying to say as it relates to the role of the Spirit in the life of the church. And so here's my main idea. I always try to give you one. It's slightly altered from the one that's in your, your guide this morning, if you picked up one from, that, from the back. But here it is. The Holy Spirit, which indwells the church. This is a theological fact. Everyone believes in this. The Holy Spirit resides in the church in a way post-Christ's ascension that has never been in any type of inaugural sense before. The Holy Spirit, which indwells the church, God's people, he bestows gifts upon the church in varying ways to magnify the lordship of Jesus and to serve the common good of believers. That's generally what we're going to see here in these first 11 verses. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit which indwells the church bestows gifts upon the church in varying ways to magnify the lordship of Jesus. Critical. Critical especially when you see some of the hoopla that goes on out there today, and serve the common good of believers. I hope by the time this is all over with, this is where we will we settle our heart and settle our mind as it relates to these kinds of things and realize that if we can come to this place, we might can still give a little, we can still wrestle with and trust and, and that God can work in a lot of powerful ways in the church even to this day, but we don't need a bunch of, you know, extreme foolishness on, 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 in the church to prove that God's with us. That's the thing we want to avoid. So you'll remember, back in chapter 11, it marked a transition for Paul, and he's beginning to, to tackle this issue of the local church, its worship gatherings, and we dealt with head coverings, we've dealt with the Lord's Supper last week, and just really the idea of honor and the, the responsibility of the local church to, to honor one another, and to care for one another and to do things beyond, above themselves, beyond themselves. This has been a big part that Paul's been picking at really throughout most of his letter. And so today as we get into chapter 12 and we kind of peruse through chapter 14, the conversation before us, it constitutes like what Paul's main idea of these next few chapters is. What constitutes true, uh, genuine spiritual evidence that authenticates Christian worship? The culture in which the Corinthian believers of this day um, were coming out of, they valued to a great deal, um, a great deal spirituality, uh, experiences with the divine. But what often passed as authentic connection for this culture, this Greco-Roman culture, particularly in Corinth, that what they valued with as authentic connection to the divine usually revolved around ecstatic behavior to some degree or another. So for the Greco-Roman world, their culture, this authenticated a kind of 
connection with the divine that others didn't have. And so, so, and so it was understood that those who often perhaps threw themselves about in ecstatic ways, which is really what would happen in religious uh, pagan culture, or they would speak in frenzied kind of ways. Um, this seemed to prove to the average churchgoer or the average Corinthian um, uh, 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 member, right, citizen, that, man, these people had some special spiritual endowment. And so what we've already seen in Paul's letter leading up to this is that he's been concerned about this worldly spirituality setting in and the threat it poses to the authentic Christian witness that is already, and, and how this stuff has already kind of penetrated the church, and Paul wants to deal with this. We, we see this back in chapter 2. I'll just take you there for a moment. We'll survey it for a second. Verse 6. It says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of this, I mean, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, they have no, what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And so he's dealing with the Spirit early on in the, in, the, in the Bible, in this letter. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And then, he, then we can fast forward a little bit here to, ver, to chapter 3, verse 1. But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. Why? But as for people of the flesh, as infants of Christ, I fed you with, the, with milk, not with solid food, for you, were all, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready you are, you are not ready, excuse me, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh. I'm saying you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. I'm sorry, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way, he says, questions? For when he says one follows Paul or another follows Paul, are you not behaving merely human? So what Paul's dealing with and coming now back to that main concern is what you're doing is that you are, you're assessing spiritual vitality in the church based on, some person's spiritual experience because it seems valid because they're going nuts essentially is what's happening and he goes that's not a valid reason or they'll look at a person and they kind of do the whole kind of cult of personality evaluation paul apollos and they say okay these are these guys and so i'm gonna be of this tribe we do this all the time unfortunately in american christianity and we got to be aware that it's not something that was unique to paul's day it's very much unique to us. It's a tragedy that is still a reality. The modern church seems to have a, a penchant for this kind of rivalry or revivalism or pietism in the church, where we're always seeking to go beyond the ordinary things that God gives us, the ordinary preached word, the ordinary fellowship of the believing, the ordinary res responsibilities of, 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 of the, of the um, building up of the church and the the, the, the ordinances God gives us, we just never seem to be very comfortable with receiving what God has given. That's really the main issue that Paul's dealing with here. Be, be comfortable with what God has given you through the Spirit. He's given you His Word through the Spirit. He's given you His Son through the Spirit. He's, he's given you salvation and grace through His Spirit. And it's those things that are fleshed out and made visible and powerful and extraordinary in the life of the church. It's those things. So then as we dig into Paul's instruction in these first 11 verses this morning, we're going to see th three things. 
And I'm just, we're going to walk through them kind of step by step. We're going to see, number one, Paul's focus of what it means to be authentically spiritual is that does it exalt Jesus? If it doesn't exalt Jesus, it needs to be abandoned. Full stop. Does it build the church? Number two, does it build the church? Does the church actually mature and grow by the work of the Spirit that we're seeing in the church? And three, does it empower the members of that church? So does it exalt? Does it build? Does it empower? Does he empower the church? I'm sorry. He empower the church, the Holy Spirit. So let's just look at that first point. The Spirit speaks, number one, of the Lordship of Jesus. In other words, the Spirit speaks to exalt Jesus. Again, let's just look at the first two or three verses there. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever said Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. The importance of being informed for Paul of spiritual things is kind of sets the kind of tone of this. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed concerning these spiritual gifts. Now, the, the, the word here for gifts is not the same word used later in this text, which is charismata for gifts. This is more dealing with the fact of spiritual things, spiritual matters, maybe even spiritual persons, now considering spiritual persons. So this is ideally probably what Paul's addressing. There's these spiritual persons who are saying, I got Jesus, and here's how I'm proving it. All right? We've met those people. And you're like, I need you to go sit down, please. You're bothering me. Um, I, I, that's what I want to say sometimes. So that he's dealing with the, the concerning spiritual persons, spiritual things. The, the, there's a, there's a, um, a bit of a hubbub going around the church and going, okay, so how do we discern acts of the Spirit in the local church. And so, again, as we said before, Paul's concerned about the ways the Corinthians are thinking about the evidence of true spirituality in the church because of the pagan culture in which they came out of. And so, likely, the charismata that he's dealing with here, the acts of the Spirit, which we best translated as gift in the Spirit, Paul's trying to convey to, the, convey to them that the work of the Spirit is, 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 um, is uh, it's a, it's a kind of a free gift to the church. Not something that is given or endowed to specific, very talented people or very gifted people, but that when the Spirit comes and descends on the church, it's something freely God gives the church so that he can, he can bring attention to Jesus and he can build the church, as we said, and empower the members of the church. Again, going back to chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4 there, the divisions of the church were based on what? And we said a second ago, a cult of personality. They were based on a, a gifting they may have had and whether the oratory or writing skills or whatever. And Paul says, that's not how you measure the work of the Spirit. It's not. Lots of gifted people who can speak very convincingly about a lot of things, they, that does not mean the Spirit is at work in there. I, I, I think it's really important that we recognize that. What Paul is seeking to do is help the Corinthian church discern, like he was trying to deal with in outlining in chapter 2, what is human spirit-driven spirituality and Christ-centered spirituality. Which of those is giving evidence that what is truly Christian? And he identifies it here in verse 2, what human spirituality is. He says very clearly, they are mute idols. Right? You know when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols. However, you were 
led. Pagans, like they, this, this was pagan worship, worshiping gods, okay? That's what they were doing. They were muted, powerless spirituality, Paul is basically saying here, uh, of the world that they were bringing into the church, unfortunately. They were using all these experiences to somehow or another boister the gospel, boister the, the witness of the scriptures that they had available to them at the time. And he says, you are, your former manner of life was you gave, bowed to dumb idols. And some of your idols, some of your versions say that dumb just means mute. They are speechless. And so he's making this distinction between the spirit that actually speaks and the spirit that actually doesn't speak. You're just making it up. You're making it up out of your own idolatry. In other words, so Paul's saying here, you used to serve a bunch of speechless idols. And they have powerful control of your life, but they're not real. Human spirituality is led astray, Paul says, and we can, we can attest to this, into human perceptions. And they ultimately distract from Jesus. They ultimately take away from Jesus because that's what he goes into in that next um, verse, verse 3. No spirit, no one speaking, therefore, verse 3, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking of the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord. He makes it very, very clear here that the Spirit of Christ and that the work of the Spirit is unmitigatingly devoted to the glory of Jesus, to the Lordship of Jesus. No true work of the Spirit ever can say Christ is accursed. Now, a lot of commentators are trying to figure out, like, what does that mean? And why was this, was this a statement that was going around in the early church of some sort? It probably, probably even dealt with the Jews who were pushing back against this, that Jesus is a curse. Look, and he died on the cross and, and whatever else. And they're trying to, that, or it could be just the, the main pagan culture there who saw the rise of Christianity as a threat to them. And so probably one of their parts of their pagan liturgy was, these Christians are an accursed people because they, they follow an accursed savior. Because he died on the cross, right? And so he's saying, look, you can't follow the same, use the same tools of the old culture because the same, same tools of the other culture, of the culture basically used it to say Jesus is accursed. So that doesn't work at all. No, Jesus' lordship posed a threat to the sovereign power of, of Caesar during his time, who was, by the way, what? The ultimate divine, Yeah. And so why would they not say Jesus is a curse in their pagan practices? And Paul says, no, human spirituality can never lead you to see Jesus. Rather, only the Holy Spirit can actually call you, can prompt you to say Jesus is Lord. He's testifying to the fact that the, what, the main way you know someone is genuinely a spirit-filled believer or there's a spirit working inside of a church is when they say Jesus is Lord. Amen? That's what we want to see here. This is what Paul wants to say. A true work of the Spirit is unswervingly directed toward the glory and lordship of Jesus. The authentication of the true work of the Spirit of God brings preeminence and honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Now, just some brief application there might be helpful. I'll save some for the end, but I'll just say it this. It should prompt you and I to be mindful in, in, in how we gather and what we employ in the word the Lord's Day gathering specifically, but even in, the, in light of even just our general gatherings that you may do beyond here, what is it that we, these things do to bring a spotlight on Jesus? And this is particularly, I think, related to the gathered church, the Sabbath day church, 
gathering of the, uh, uh, that we need to be careful of that. Did the things that we do here bring glory? Do they shine a spotlight on Jesus, the work, his finished work? Or do they tend to kind of draw attention to some kind of cult of personality? You know, a certain type of really well-articulated speaker. And again, friends, I tell you this, this you, don't have, you don't have to go to the other side and say it's them there. Like, like it happens within our own sphere at times. We're just, we can be very easily persuaded by certain types of personality or a certain type of way worship is conducted. We've got to be careful of those things. Like, we should be mindful that the experience, and experience is not bad. We want you to experience something here at Grace. Like, some of you guys, man, the way we're singing in here, I was like, man, we may be breaking out a little continuationism going on in here this morning. All right? Okay, so, okay, I know, I said it, right? But, I, I, but what I'm saying is, is like, it's, it's, we want you to experience Jesus. And to the degree that we're making Jesus front and center here, that's what we need to make sure. We want to experience not the king of, uh, or, or the Caesar or the emperor of Rome. If your spirituality basically brings attention to some, something earthly, it's failed to be worship. It needs to bring attention to Jesus. And so then Paul then goes forward in verses 4 through 7, and he's moving his instruction forward, saying, okay, first thing, test of the Spirit, is he speaks to the Lordship of Jesus, but two, the Spirit builds the church of Christ. All right? Whereas these first verses are the Lordship, I'm sorry, the Spirit speaks of the Lordship of Christ, two, the Spirit builds the church of Christ. Now, there are a variety of gifts, he says, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. A lot of, a lot of things to unpack there. And again, some of this will unpack more detail in a couple weeks, as we, specifically as we look in our third point at the different gifts that he gives here in verses uh, 8 through 11. And we'll combine that with 27 through 31 in two weeks. But here, it's got to be clear. Does the work of the Spirit, or what we attest to the work of the Spirit, is it building the church up? And he uses this terms of a variety of gifts, a variety of, act, a variety of services, a variety of activities. And he doesn't really spend a lot of time enumerating what these gifts, these services, these activities are in this particular introductory portion of his exposition on the role of the Spirit. We'll get more into detail on that. We'll even survey some things from uh, other lists of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit later on as well in the next couple weeks. But we can largely say gifts are those, that general disposition of the Spirit to the church. It's like it's a gift freely given. The Spirit wants the church to experience God's grace freely, and He does so, and He manifests Himself in that way, in different ways. Two, the services that kind of, kind of come from the, the church, within the church, the general mindset of service of Christ that is manifested through the church of Christ, how we serve in varying capacities. These are indications that God is building the church when there's love and care. We, we see that in our church all the time, don't we? we just, we're trying to imbibe the service of Christ towards us and the way in which we serve one another. Activities, you know, that would perhaps be the general activity of the church that is sovereignly unfolding through the good hand of God through the church. That's important here. 
But, what is, but, 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 but more important than trying to kind of mine out and tease out what these things may be, what is most important for us here is that the Spirit is ever at work in the church. So wherever you are or wherever we tend to be, secessionists or continuation, uh, continuationists, um, what's important is that both sides are, should, and I, as far as I can tell, always believe that the Spirit is at work in the church. Why? To grow us up in Christ. And if people are growing up in Christ, that's an evidence that the Spirit's at work. Now, so I think if we were to think well about the worship of God's people, the corporate worship of God's people, and Christian worship particularly, since this is the larger context of what Paul is kind of unpacking here in this portion of the letter, we should consider how these elements, these three elements of gifts and service and activities, are they church? And the things that we do as a church, do they bring a spotlight to Jesus and his accomplishments for us? And this is why our liturgy matters. That's why we sing the songs we do. That's why we do law and gospel. That's why we do a call to worship. That's why we do a pastoral prayer. That's why we do a benediction. We're bringing the scriptures to bear on the hearts of everyone sitting here as you walk out of here. And with the aim of what? That you might have your hope grounded in Christ. This is why liturgy matters. Whatever you might be thinking about how we do things here, that's why we choose to do what we do it. All worship, as I said earlier, is experimental in one way or the other. So to say that it's not experiential is not to be intellectually honest. But experience is the outflow of what we do here, not the inflow. And what I mean by that is we're not called to create the experience here, to provoke the experience here. We're not here to manufacture the experience of Christ here. We're called to give you Christ, and the Spirit then has the outflow of that in our lives as a result. Yes? That's what we want to see. So again, a good test of this work of the Spirit is it's the outflow as we're receiving God's Word on a weekly, and weekly basis. We're being encouraged by the saints of God in here on, on a given Sunday. This is what we want to see. That should be the evidence of genuine spiritual work in our lives in the work spirit, spiritual work in it. But I, just something else that you have to take notice of here in verses 4 through 7 is how Trinitarian it is. That this is, the work of the Spirit is not just the Spirit operating and his, doing his own thing over here, but the Spirit, and this is unfortunately what happens a lot of times in charismatic circles and continuationist circles. They almost kind of like slice off the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's doing his own thing over here. That's not good. But that's not what Paul says here, does he? I mean, just notice there are a variety of gifts, but one spirit. There are varieties of service, but one, but the same Lord that's usually used as Jesus, the Son. And there are a variety of activities, but the same God. A lot of times often used Father there. There's this Trinitarian nature. Like the, the Spirit's not operating out on his own thing, doing his own thing, kind of like he's the rogue part of the Trinity which a lot of times is how we treat him. No, he's doing this in concert with the glory of the Godhead. Just like the Son goes and proceeds from the Father to do everything that would bring glory to the Father and what the Father has decreed. The Holy Spirit works in this way. And so when we begin to talk in, of the work of the Spirit in such a way that it divorces the Spirit from the, the redemptive work of God that He has set into order before time began, we are, we are already well beyond the scope of what the Holy Spirit is 
in the church. It's the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God who, who does this. And it's, it's clearly Paul wants us to see that this is, like, if you want to understand what the Holy Spirit's doing in your church, the Spirit's doing in concert with the Father and the Son, all that the Father has decreed from time, before time, from eternity past. And then he ends it there. Um, in verse uh, 7, the same God who empowers them all and everyone, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So it's not just for the glory of Jesus, although it is preeminently so, but the Spirit's work seeks the common good of the church through the individual members of the church. These gifts are endowed by, as we sang in our second song, grace alone. We will see this more and more as we continue through this study, but particularly next week as we get into verses 12 through 26. There's not one gift, there's not one service, there's not one activity that is greater than the other. All are needed. For what? For the common good of the church. Why? Because living in this world is a mess. And we all know it. It's why, it's, it's, again, it's like I said, it's why Luther penned the hymn. He's singing, it's tough right now to stand on the truth. It's tough right now to stand on the truth in a world that has lost its way and went crazy and has really crazy ideas as to how to assess how things are going, particularly right now in more contemporary terms, it's going on in the Middle East with Israel and whatnot. Why? And the church needs to go, we got to stand on truth in these things. And it's not easy to stand on the truth of the matter, is it? See, so what's important for us understanding Paul's purposes in these first 11 verses is that these gifts, these services, these activities are given by God to his church for our good and for our building up in the faith. Why? Because we don't know when Jesus is going to return. Common you know, uh, uh, there are a lot of people out here doing all of the math, right? They're doing the math of like what's going on in Israel now. And they're like, okay, let's happen in here. And so this must mean this. And they're counting out the years. You know, like, I just want to tell you, like, that's never encouraged in scripture. The Bible is not a, a numerology document. It's not. Please abandon any notions of that if it's any inkling of you in your soul this morning. no. He gives us the Spirit, not just in good times, but in bad times, for our common good, and that we may continually be built up in Christ. We need that message this morning, church. We need it right now. And so he continues on, and he then finishes in verses 8 to 11 with this third and final point that the Spirit empowers the members of Christ. So we have the larger building up of the church in that middle section, but then he, then he kind, of tie, kind of dovetails into like the specifics and gets into the members of Christ, the members of the church. Look at verses 8 through 11. For to one is given through the Spirit an utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another the faith 
Faith by the same Spirit to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit to another, the working of miracles to another, prophecy to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits to another, various kinds of tongues to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. So much wonderful stuff here. And again, I am going to withhold uh, uh, extrapolating too much on the actual points of gifts that he gives to the individual members. I will touch on them here briefly here in a second. But what must be understood of what's happening here is that Paul is saying that these gifts are endowed by the Holy Spirit. It's very important that we recognize that. They're not things that we can manufacture. They're not things that you need to go and do a gifts assessment. Sorry, some of you folks who like gifts assessments. They're worthless. All right, sorry, I said it, I said it, I said it. You might have to disagree with me later. Send the email somewhere else. All right, but, 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 the, but the reality is that's not the point. Can you learn about yourself with saying I'm sorry, I probably said something a little too blunt right there, okay? Forgive me. But the reality is, sorry, they're given by the Spirit. And God, through the Spirit, gives us what we need when we need it. And so those of us who've been in this church since day one, and we prayed for certain things to happen and for certain people, God to bring certain people who have certain gifts and whatever else, like those things have begun to happen, yes? So if we didn't have some of those things and we just had to sit and be patient and wait for things to unfold because God would bring it or he would develop it in some capacity within the church. It precludes any notion of a kind of special spiritual ability that we need. Like a, a member can't come to me or come to our elders and say, I have something that you don't have, and I need you to do what I tell you to do. I promise you that conversation won't go well, <laughs> right? It just won't. And it's not because we don't want to sit and listen, and we want to hear and think about how God might be edified through that. That's not what I'm talking about. What he's dismissing is any notion that, there, that, 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 that God would, is using a specific, a specific spiritual class of people to accomplish his work, when in reality is he's endowing all his members with gifts. And he gives them as they are needed. That's what's important here. So, go through the list briefly here. Again, we'll return to a more exhaustive look at this when we go to get to verses 27 through 31 in two weeks. But he says, an utterance of wisdom or an utterance of knowledge, likely a gift of teaching of some sort, demonstration of faith, we're not talking about saving faith here. Probably some, some gift that God gives the church of someone who has extraordinary faith and trust in the Lord. A gift of healing and miracles. Um, those are probably likely closely related. Um, a gift of healing sicknesses and de diseases and infirmities. Could be closely related to that boldness of faith that we just talked about or was just listed before that for ailing saints where we just pray the pain off the walls for people. Yeah. Storing the sight of the blind. And we'll get there. I know you're like, are these saints so operative, Pastor? Hold on. Just, just slow your roll. We're going to get there. Prophecy, most often understood as truth-telling, not necessarily future-telling, but not exclusive because prophecy did have an element of calling for the aid, through the aid of the Holy Spirit. There's uh, things that we might need it in a given situation. That really did happen in the early church particularly. But there was prophecy that did warn about future events. We think about Agabus in, in Acts. This says discerning the spirits um, or just uh, 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 discernment between the truth and fiction, perhaps. Tongues, 
Languages, people. Languages. Like real languages. Okay? Um, Acts 2 languages. Not exuberant utterances in some spiritual way. And then gifts of interpretation, how to engage in that. These were the realities that were um, given to the church. And the Spirit empowers and endows these giftings. And it says here, and the most important part here is, is God gives as He wills. He sovereignly gives these things as He wills. So let's just get down to the question, and we kind of start wrapping it up here. I'm sure the big question for many of us is here is, okay, so where do we land on some of these matters? Are, are all these gifts equally given? Are they still active in the church today? Should we expect these kinds of things? And if not, if so, why do we not see some of those things in our fellowship here at Grace Church? And, and the clear thing is that I, I, Paul doesn't really give an indication here in these first verses. Um, he doesn't indicate one way or the other. And again, why the whole continuationist and, con and the secessionist debate uh, rages on. But what he does say is really, really vitally important. And it needs our close attention. As I've already said, and I want to say it again, the Spirit sovereignly endows these gifts as He wills. And if you have a good, solid grasp of redemptive history, Genesis to Revelation, and you see the work of the Spirit and how the Spirit has worked and sometimes worked in extraordinary ways from Genesis all the way through, um, through, through when Jesus returns is what's revealed to us, we can, we can look at this and we say, look, at the end of the day, the Spirit is at work. What we can say, and again, as one who kind of lends into the uh, more historic secessionist view, like, like let's, be a, let's, let's understand what the role of the Spirit is and what we should regularly expect of the Spirit. Has there been times in church history where the Spirit has endowed a grander spiritual acts through the, uh, throughout the biblical witness? Yes. But they've almost always been connected to some point of unfolding of God's redemptive plan. There's always been this inauguration point where the Spirit would signal something's changing here. So you can see this kind of unfolding sometimes throughout the Bible if you pay, pay attention to it. And of course, we know that the grand moment of that is when we have Pentecost. Right? And let me just see if I can show you what I mean by that. I mean, you can go back to like, obviously, it's the Spirit that's breathed into Adam. And we also know that Adam and Eve are separated from God. But it's not until later that Paul, that God, uh, God uh, uh, approaches Abraham and he says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make your people a great nation. And he calls us a great sleep. And the Spirit gives him this vision of, in this deep sleep. And he cuts a covenant with him in this deep sleep. That's an inauguration point of the Spirit in a specific way. The Spirit working extraordinary miracles through Moses when he goes back into Egypt. That's an inauguration point, and it's, and, it's, and it's representing something in that moment, but also in, in something typological about the emancipation of God's people from their slavery. It's an inauguration point. The, 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 the splitting of the, of the uh, dividing of the Red, of the Red Sea, of the dead, you know, uh, that is an inauguration point. The conquering of the land of Canaan, particularly the surrounding of Jericho, inauguration point of God conquering his people and reclaiming his land. Again, a type pointing to something much bigger than even the moment itself. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's bringing attention to these moments. Why? So we can see the arc of redemption throughout the Bible. 
that defeated the Philistines through the supernatural courage of the would-be child king David? I mean, who in the heck does that? But it's, again, an inauguration point where the Spirit's highlighting that the same babe who would come in the manger would conquer kings and be the king of kings. The embarrassing miracles of Elijah between the two false, pro the false prophets there from Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, are you kidding me? Just keep pouring water on that for me, please. Just, just keep on doing that. I'll come back to you here in a minute. I mean, it's embarrassing, but these are moments throughout the biblical witness. The healing of Naaman by Elisha. The, the ministry and miracles of Jesus, which again is the like real inauguration point. Like when the, the gospel writers say the kingdom of God is at hand and then they again begin to unfold the story of Jesus and his life. And then you see these wonderful miracles of Jesus. It's an inauguration of what? Through Jesus's life. Again, remember, just go, go back and read yourself. Like he goes out to the wilderness and he's baptized by John. And John's like, why am I baptizing you? He says, that's all for the purposes of God. And the spirit descends and said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. What is that? It's a spirit, work of the spirit in a moment to inaugurate something beautiful about the ark of redemption. That's how we should see the extraordinary work, right? The extraordinary work of the spirit. And that's how we've all, when you read the Bible appropriately, that's what we see. And that's what we understand in good biblical theology. But what Paul is saying is that those things happen, and God has to choose to do those anytime he wishes to do that. But they're not the normative way. And I believe that's what he's trying to say here. He never once indicates that all these things that we just listed off here and what we're going to talk about in verses 27 through 31, that those are normative realities for the day, or that's something we should normally experience. He's saying that God gives them as we need them. And he's been doing it since the, since the beginning. But what Paul says the normative for all church ages is that the ordinary means of grace. I'm, not, I'm convinced that Paul is talking about the normative work of the Spirit in the church is the preaching of God's Word. It's the fellowship of the believers who hold each other up week in, week out. It's the meaningfulness of member, every member ministry, which we'll get to next week. It's the participation of the sacraments of baptism and communion that, that did make us a distinct people. It's the, these are the normal agency of the Holy Spirit. They're not necessarily the ecstatic experiences of God's people, but the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in the everyday stuff of our lives. What keeps you dad showing up to be a good dad? I can promise you it's not you. It's the Spirit working in you. Mom, what keeps you showing up? It's not you. I promise you it's not you. That's the normal stuff of spiritual gifts. And the normal stuff of spiritual gifts in this church are going to be the, the exaltation of Jesus through his preached word, building up the fellowship of the believing, and to the degree that God has gifts in this church that he has given to us, they will be used for the glory of God and for the propagation and the declaration of the gospel to all peoples everywhere. That's what we should take from these texts. That's all we should take from these texts. We should, we should be careful that we don't overstate one side or the other side. Because both sides should have this stuff in mind. The Spirit. And even Jesus said the same thing to Nicodemus. The Spirit 
saves you, the Spirit's going to save. He wasn't saying he was rogue God or anything, but he was just saying that this is what the Spirit does. And you have no control of the Spirit. You have no control when that thing lands on you. So God will do this. And so we don't know. I mean, again, the reality is, can the Lord and, and non-revelatory, I am one of those guys who believe that not, the revelatory gifts are gone. They're not, they're not there. God's given us sufficiently in his word. That's where we stand. We will firmly stand on that for as long as I'm pastor here, as, as far as I'm concerned. But can the Lord in extraordinary times and extraordinary situations do things to the Spirit as he wishes? Absolutely. And I think we have to be at least be willing to say that. But again, in conjunction with serving the Lordship of Jesus, exalting Jesus, you don't need someone blowing up in tongues in here to encourage a church. That doesn't encourage a church. Paul actually says quite the opposite. If someone comes in here and speaks a different language, we are pray that God gave us someone who can interpret that, yeah? That's what we're talking about. He gives us, like if God all of a sudden just says, there's a lot of Hispanic believers who need to be encouraged in the gospel, we got to pray that someone comes in here who can help us with this. Oh, we got a couple people already who do that. But I mean, we're just saying that, right? I, 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 I'm a manager for a soccer team, and I got Burmese kids whose parents don't speak English. I got kids who are Hispanic whose parents don't speak English. And I have to find a way to, 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 to minister and care for them through this work I'm doing. And I have to, there's a sister, I have to ask her to come help me with interpretation from time to time. That's what we're, that's what I think Paul's getting at is, is that just like in Acts, this gospel is for everybody. It's for every nation tongue that will confess Jesus. And we got to pray that God builds up his church to the point that everyone gets to hear the sweet news of the gospel. That's what we're after, friends. That's what we're after. And that's what we should be hoping for and praying for in this church, both in this local fellowship and beyond it as we give this Sunday, yes, shameless plug there, for missions across the globe. With that in our mind, let's pray and let's prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. Father, as we come to your word this morning and we think through these things and wrestle with these things and be hopeful in these things, trusting that you're going to do a good work in us and through us. Jesus, we trust that you're, you're, you're going to do it. And so, Father, build your church through this. Exalt Jesus through this. And let us give ourselves to this as members with the gifts that you've given us so that we may see this church built up and see your glory be renowned wherever we go. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.